2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourselves as a workman approved by God who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And that's my, my heart. And uh, some of just my ADD kicks in. If you're wondering, they are working on our air conditioner. We weren't just playing around in here. And um, so they had, uh, that's why it looks a little different in here. They're, they're putting in the new air conditioner units and we had hoped that that would be done this week, but it looks like we will uh, go autonomous to the sound of a fan in the background, and so which I'm getting used to it now. So, but if you're wondering why everything was different, there, that it's the air. But uh, we, the goal with this series is that we would be a people that rightly divide the word of truth. The the goal even of me and your as your pastor and what I do each week and how I preach and teach is that we would be a people that rightly divides the word of truth, that we would be taught how to do that. And hopefully you have. And, and even today as we close this series, um, as we've looked at really eight passages that are, that are greatly abused, that are, are greatly mistreated, that are greatly taken out of context, hopefully you've learned and are learning how to study the word of God rightly. And the, the, we close today with really one of the more dangerous, um, one of the more popular sayings that Christians say all the time that is absolutely unbiblical. This, this one is, this one really is a, a chart topper. Above maybe, as my wife will tell you, Jeremiah 29 11 is one of my pet peeves. I hear that, that verse misquoted a lot. I hear this one a lot. And it's really why I wanted to save it for today because really it, it culminates and really we would have had all the other passages to build upon to get to this one right here. And the saying is this, and I say saying because you, the dangerousness of this one is at least the others, like they were verses that were in the Bible. You could go to Jeremiah 29, 11, at least it said what we said it said, we just didn't treat it rightly. You could go to Romans 8, 28. You could go to John 14, 13. You could go to Matthew 7 and say, don't judge, that should be judged. That's what it says. But, but with this one, like if you Google this saying, you know what you come up with on verses? Zero. Zero. Now I'm going to take us to the passage, and you're already there, that, that people will try to make the passage fit the saying, but, but, but it, it doesn't work. And what I want to look at today is the saying of this, God will never give you more than you can handle. Ironically, I was taking my son down to the fairgrounds. We had to be down there at 8 o'clock yesterday for an FFA meeting. And group one crew comes on the radio and they sing this song. Christian song on the radio station, God will never give you more than you can handle. I, I just started laughing and Bradley says, what are you laughing about? And so we had a we had a little chat uh, about the theology of the song, and, and that's probably one of the dangers of living in the Basham household is we, we, we critique songs. At least I say we, their daddy critiques songs. And vicariously, they get to critique songs. And uh, probably the way that you feel of like, could, do I dare go to any verse without passing Chris? Approving it, they're, they're probably thinking, are we allowed to listen to this, Dad? Is this theology right, Dad? And I don't want to be that guy, but I want to teach them. You know, the, thing, the beautiful thing about the songs we sang this morning is, in my mind, verses were rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling with every single lyric. There was a verse that backed that lyric up. That's the beauty of real worship. We're not just making stuff up. We're just not singing about a God how we wished He was or the way we wished he was, or if we were going to design a God, hey, this is the way we design it, or, you know what, I'm just going to worship God however I want. No, we're going to worship God the way that he has revealed himself. We're not going to add to, we're not going to take away. And, and, and I'm sure all of us have, have, I don't even dare ask, because you know what's coming. You know I'm going to tell you that this verse is out of context. The cat's out of the bag. It, but, but seriously, you ever said this? God, will, You ever tried to encourage somebody with this? Uh, many of you probably have. God will never give you more than you can handle. Don't you worry. Be honest. We've we probably all been there. 
unfortunately, I'm going to be the bad guy this morning, and I'm going to pull the rug out from under your feet, and we'll have another quilt burning next week, and pillow, pillow, throw pillow burning, and we'll take all these verses that we've embroidered and put on our note cards, and we'll just burn them all and get rid of them. That's not the point of this series. The point of this series is to rightly divide the word of truth. The point of this series is to see that God has given us some precious promises. The point of this series is to see the faithfulness of God and the awesomeness of God. And again, the challenge is with this one, is this saying is not in the Bible. Again, if you Google that verse, you're not going to find that verse in the Bible. God will never give you more than you can handle. You won't find it. And I think that's what makes this specific um, abuse or misquotation of the Bible so egregious that you can't even back it up with a verse. Now, people will try, and we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 10, and I'm going to ex hopefully explain to you that it's completely taken out of context. The, the reality is this, is what we'll see in 1 Corinthians 10 is the challenge is it says the opposite. God will never give you more than you can handle. Who's the focus there on? It's you. The focus is never on me. The, the reality is I can't pastor this church on my own. God can do it through me. The, the reality is, 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 is I don't have any idea what next Sunday holds and the future, but God does. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about it this week and... You know, just being honest, just kind of fearful. And Lee didn't know that, but he reminded me even this morning just of a warfare. I remember when Ken Witten asked me to take over to become the pastor out of here, out here. And within weeks, within weeks, my wife could probably tell you the exact number of days. We're sitting in the pediatric ICU with our daughter with a fractured skull and bleeding on her brain. Within weeks, I... I'm not a guy that sees Satan behind every rock, but I don't, I don't think beyond a shadow of a doubt that that was not spiritual warfare. Within, within, within a, a matter of days of accepting this position, we're in pediatric ICU with a daughter who has a fractured skull and, and didn't speak for about 18 hours and has bleeding on the brain. Now again, it, it, you know, Karen and I, we, it doesn't seem like there's any side effects of that. We, we've, Sarah has some behaviors that Karen and I diagnose with that. But um, the point is this, as, as Clay said, God didn't promise us security. He didn't promise safety. He promised himself. And he promised that he would be faithful. And as we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, this is a great verse. It's a rich verse. It, it, it offers a great promise to us, just we've taken it out of the bounds. We've taken beyond the bounds of which he promises here. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Let's read it together. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be what? Tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Even in that verse, he doesn't, promise, he doesn't promise to just take it away. The promise is that you can endure it. And so I want to, do, I want to treat today as we close this series the way that we've treated every other, every other sermon in this series. We're going to start off with a 30,000 foot wide view lens of the context of 1 Corinthians as a book itself. We're going to narrow down. The second point is going to be the context of chapter 10. The third point is going to be the specific verse, 1013. And the fourth point is going to have to do with the greater truth of what the Bible holds and why this really is a lie in the sense of it's not a whole truth. And a whole truth is a whole lie. I mean, a half truth is a whole lie. So, so look with me on your handout, and then after the service, after the sermon today, give me a few minutes. I want to I address some questions regarding next Sunday for us, and uh, just uh, there's a lot going on in this next week, and so I want to address some, some questions uh, just publicly with you guys and, and hopefully uh, deal with any confusion there might be or any questions you might have, and, uh, and then we'll go to small groups. So point one. 
Point one, the context of 1 Corinthians is a letter of warning to a body of believers who were plagued by the consequences of their arrogance and immaturity. If you were to look at the, book, the letter of 1 Corinthians, you would see Paul dealing constantly with arrogance and immaturity and the consequences that came about. Let me just read a few verses for the sake of time. For, for chapter 1, just listen, you can write these down. Chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty or not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. Right out of the chute, this, this whole section, if I had time, you could start reading in, in verse 18, because Paul, I mean, Clay quoted that, that the cross is foolishness. Why did God orchestrate things the way he did? So that no man may boast before God, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Here's the point. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you looked at, at, second, at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, it talks about the natural man does not appraise, does not value the cross, but the spiritual man appraises all. All things. You can look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. I'll just read quickly. He talks about they were immature, that he came to them with the word of God. They were not able to handle it. They were still fleshly. There was jealousy and strife. And, and look at verse 7 of chapter 3. He says, some were arguing about Apollo. Some were arguing about Paul. They were putting their faith in men. And what does Paul say? So that neither the one nor the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. Again, he's dealing with arrogance. He's dealing with immaturity. If you looked at 1 Corinthians 4, 8, you are already filled. This is Paul is very, being, being very sarcastic here. And when you know the letter as a whole, you catch it. He's talking to the Corinthians, Corinthians and he says, you are already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us, and indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. The, the reality is, is that in their immaturity, they thought that they were somebody that they weren't. In their immaturity, they thought that they had arrived when they hadn't. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that one of the marks of immaturity in our own children? They think they can do things that they can't. They think they know what they don't know. The reality is the fact of what they don't know is, is what you as a parent are instructed to instilling in them. And the most dangerous thing about their, their, their immaturity is that they don't know what they don't know. And they think they know what they don't know. Follow that bouncing ball around a little bit. That's what happens when I get off my notes. And the Corinthians think they're somebody that they're not. They think they're mature and they're not. That's the most dangerous one of the most dangerous positions for a, a believer to be in, to think he's something that he's not. To think he can handle stuff when he can't, that he's more mature than he really is. Arrogance. And, and they, they were arrogant and they were immature. And again, you'll see on your handout, the Corinthians had a misguided view of their maturity and the impact that the culture around them was having on them. Because they were arrogant, because they were immature... Satan was having a field day with them. The culture was having a field day with them. And what you begin seeing in Corinth is what you see today, that the culture was impacting the church more than the church was impacting the culture that it was in. And they were trying to mix the two. Why? Because they were immature and they were arrogant. And the 1 Corinthians, you'll see on your handout, is a letter of warning to a body of believers who glorified self and personal rights with very little regards to others and how it affected not only themselves, but those around them. They trusted in self, they glorified in self, they, they glorified in freedoms, they lived their lives just based on one person, themselves. Isn't that, isn't that the sign of immaturity in your kids? Who, who do immature people care about? Themselves. Who do arrogant people care about? Themselves. They don't, they don't think about others. 
They don't think about how their actions affect others. And, and you, you, people think they're mature and they're not. And you, how can you tell? Jealousy, strife exist. Arrogance, immaturity, selfishness. That, that's the context of this whole letter. Arrogance and immaturity and the effects that that has on not only yourselves as believers, but others. Again, there are other themes that run through 1 Corinthians, but that is one of the big picture items of 1 Corinthians. Arrogance and immaturity. Now, now drill down just a little bit further to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is a specific chapter in a specific letter that's dealing with a specific problem. How does chapter 10 further Paul's argument? Well, that's what you see in point 2. The context of 1 Corinthians 10 is that of correction, specifically in regards to our freedoms in Christ and how we are to use those to glorify God and not self. 1 Corinthians 10 is a specific chapter with a specific purpose. He is accomplishing his goal there. Chapter 10 actually is a part of a greater context that begins in chapter 8. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians form really a, a, a large argument that is a large piece of the puzzle of Paul making the argument and the point that he's making. And here's what he's saying. Take care of your liberties. You, in Christ, you as a Christian, you, have, you, you are set free from the law of the spirit of sin and death, he says. What does that freedom mean? That's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. What, what does being free in Christ mean? Look, look at how he starts in chapter 8. Concerning the things sacrificed idols, and this was a huge player in the Corinthian culture. You'll see even in chapter 10, he deals with idolatry. Take now concerning the things sacrificed idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Guess what knowledge does? It makes arrogant, and yet love edifies. Again, he's addressing their arrogance. They had great knowledge, but, but all that knowledge was doing was puffing them up. They were arrogant. Love edifies. Knowledge puffs up. Look at verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. You see the arrogance, you see the immaturity, you see what Paul is, they think there's something that they're not. They think they've arrived to a spiritual maturity level that they have not. And Paul is dealing with them. And, and, and we don't have time to trace the argument in detail, but what Paul does is he says, if you are really mature... If you were really as mature as you think you were, here's what love would really look like. Here's what your freedoms would really look like. And you know what he does? He culminates this in chapter 8, verse 13. In that, in that culture, meat was a big deal. It was a stumbling block in this, that they did not know whether that meat had been sacrificed to an idol or not. And the Christians were struggling over whether they could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Maybe it was cheaper. Maybe it was a deal. They, and Corinthians are struggling on whether, is it okay to eat the meat? Because it's on sale. But it was used to sacrifice to an idol. Can I eat it? It was a big deal. Paul later, will, he'll explain, look, if you go to someone's house in chapter 10 and, and they ask you if an unbeliever invites you over to the house and they want you to eat with them, he says, eat whatever you want without asking any questions with regards to conscience sake. He says, but if you know it was sacrificed to idols, now you got a problem. And look what he says in chapter 8, verse 13. This right here would be a... You could preach months and months on this one verse. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, this is Paul, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Do you know what spiritual maturity looks like? Spiritual maturity looks like 1 Corinthians 8.13. How many issues do you think, how many issues in our church today divide the body of Christ that would be solved if we were mature and less and, and humble instead of arrogant and we had the attitude that Paul had? There, I, I don't need to list them. You know what they are. All kinds of issues that in our immaturity we cling to, we hold on to. We fight for, all the while dividing the church. And you know, Paul says, lay it down. 
You, your person that's most free can lay down whatever it is they need to lay down in order for unity because they're not, that's why he says in, in, in chapter 10, also in chapter 6, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All, I've, all things are, are, are lawful, but not all things edify. He says all things are lawful, but I will what? I will not be mastered by anything. Here's, and, and I hear from all the time, well, I'm not mastered by this, then quit doing it. Well, no, nah, I don't want, because you're mastered by it. I'm not saying you're an, an alcoholic, or I'm not saying you're another thing. I'm saying you're mastered by the freedom to do that which causes division. You, you're not as mature as you think you are. Matter of fact, there may be a hint of arrogance instead of love. Because look what Paul says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. I'll never eat meat again. Pride and arrogance is what Paul is dealing with here. And they were turning their freedoms into a license to sin. And in doing that, they were leading other brothers and sisters into sin. And instead of having a a humble, loving attitude that shows their maturity, they were showing that they were really immature. Why? Because they wouldn't put it down. They wouldn't stop doing that which was divisive. And they had turned their freedoms into a license for sin. Paul builds this argument in chapter 9 and he uses his own life. And look what Paul, Paul's even, even to the fact that Paul took a second job, if you will, as a tent maker so that he would not burden the church with his ministry and providing for that ministry. Paul makes it very clear, I, I don't have to do that, but I'll do that. And look at what he says in verse 19. He, he, he already has said, it's okay for a for a man who is sowing in the gospel to reap for the gospel. Look at what Paul says in chapter in verse 19. This is what maturity looks like. This is what humility looks like. This is what love looks like in the life of a believer. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win the more. To the Jew I became a Jew, to the, to the Greek I became a Greek. He goes on. Why? To win the more. So that, verse 21, I may win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I would win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. He laid down every, anything that needed to be laid down. He said, I'll lay it down for the sake of the gospel. Imagine, imagine a church that did that. Imagine a group of believers that did that. The impact that would have. I mean, just think about this. In your own home, those of you who have more than one child, imagine the, the, the rare occasion where one of the siblings says, oh, you want this toy here? You can have it. Imagine that. You know what? You know what? You know what said? You get in my house? I got it. You want it? Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. I got it. I got it. No, no. Oh, oh. Sarah Grace, you want that? Oh, here you go. Oh, Bradley, you want that? Here you go. What else can I get for you? Imagine that household. Imagine that church. And and Paul says, run in such a way, using his own life, he says, run in such a way to win the prize. Don't run in such a way that you get disqualified. And and what Paul is saying is, is building on that into chapter 10 is this, and you see it on your handout there, what we see Paul doing in chapter 10 is warning him that they're not immune from trouble. And if they thought they were, just look at Israel. Paul uses Israel as an example. You're not immune. In your arrogance, in your immaturity, you think nothing will happen to you. Again, in our own lives, look at, our, look at us in our youth. We think, oh, nothing's going to happen to us. We're, we're, nothing will happen to me. I can handle that. It's immature. And what Paul says in first chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, is that just look at Israel. Israel saw and experienced God's blessings. And yet, look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they, for they were laid low in the wilderness. You know what God did with his people? He killed them in the wilderness. They believed ten spy, they believed the ten over the two. They didn't believe Caleb and Joshua. God had told them, This land is your land. I'm giving it to you. And they believed that the spies that 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 gave a bad report, 
didn't believe the two that gave a good one about God's faithfulness, about God's character, and God laid them low in the wilderness. And he's saying, look, don't think that God's pleased with you, Corinthians. Don't think that God's pleased with you, church at Odessa, simply because you're here today. Don't, don't think just verbally giving credence to something and then living how you want to live. God is up in heaven. Just I'm so proud of them. I'm just so grateful they're on my side. He's not. And Paul says in verses 8 through 10, do not try the Lord and His gracious. And look what he says in verse 8 of chapter 10. Nor let us lack immorally as some of them did with 23, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. This is God's own people that are talking about here. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Immorality. Uh, taking the Lord for granted. And then grumbling. Again, grumbling? They died for grumbling. Hello. Grumbling. I mean, we're not like murder. Can you name some harder, bigger? No, grumbling. Grumbling. And Paul is warning the Corinthians and saying, look, in, in your, it, this is what connects it all. Pride and arrogance. Look at verses 11 and 12. These things happen to them. This is, Paul gets to the point. We're, we're drilling down closer to our context. These things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Do you see the warning? The, 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 the man or the woman who thinks they're immune, who thinks they don't have to have their guard up, that they're beyond certain things, that this will never happen to me, I'm better than that. Take heed lest you stand, lest you fall. That's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. God opposes the proud and does what? Gives grace to the humble. Take heed lest you fall. He's saying take heed lest you experience the same end, the same failure that Israel did. And Paul warns the Corinthians about the dangers of being arrogant and overly confident in their ability to resist temptation, to resist the things of the world. And in our pride and arrogance, we cling to our freedoms. Why? Because we have a lack of love. The reality is, it's a lack of love. Listen, I love my wife and my two children. There's no doubt about that. Now, they may question that sometimes, but deep down, I really do love them. I'll do, guess how that shows? I'll do anything for them. There's college football on. You know what I'm watching? What was the name of that thing last night? The Boxcar Children. There's college football on. I don't give it about 12 weeks to watch this stuff out of the whole year. And I'm watching boxcar children. Why? Because I love my kids. I love my kids. Tomorrow, tonight, we'll tape something. And there's a specific show our kids like to watch. And we'll, we'll watch it. And guess what? There'll be Monday night football on. You know what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be watching a show that's on Hallmark Channel. Yeah, Hallmark Channel. Hallmark Channel. It's a great channel, but just can you, can you, not on Monday night. There's something that happens every Monday night that's great too. Hallmark Channel. Why? Why do I do that? Because I love my kids and I love my wife. And, and, and to not do that, you, it would be a lack of love. And he's warning them, the Corinthian believers, listen, they were puffed up in regards to themselves and their ability to get as close to sin as possible or even sin. And they felt like, hey, we're immune. We're God's people. We do whatever we want to do. Live however we want to live. And Paul's warning them. And, and that's where 1 Corinthians 10, 13 comes into play. Specifically. And with this verse, Paul, Paul turns a corner. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he is dealing with temptation and he is informing their audience that rather than being arrogant about what they're facing, they were to know that what they were facing was actually common to all men. 
It was common. And, and what Paul, and, and that not only that, but God would give more than the gr- enough grace to deal with the temptation. Temptation. Again, Paul is crushing and assaulting their arrogance and their pride. They thought that what they were going through was different than what anybody else had ever gone through. And you know what Paul says? Your temptation is common to man. Nothing new. You know what he says here to all of us? There is nothing that any of you are dealing with that Christians all over the world aren't dealing with with regards to temptation. Are you a man here today? Listen to me. I know what you battle with. Be honest. And you women, you know what other women battle with. It's common. Some of us may have a better grip on it than others, but it's common. Don't think, oh, nobody knows what I'm going through. That's a lie. That's a lie with regards to temptation. Temptation is common to man. Temptation is universal to man. It's not, nothing, you're, nothing you're battling is unique. That's arrogant and pride that says that. that. That's what our kids say. You think about it. How many times your kids say, well, Dad, you just don't know what it's... Are you kidding me? I was nine once. Bradley said something like that. I mean, not Bradley. I heard a kid say that the other day, and I'm thinking... Boy, I, I told Bradley, I said, Bradley, enjoy being 11 while you can. Don't be quick to grow up. Don't be quick to grow up. Would I love not just to have a couple math problems to do for homework at night and then go play all night? Man, I love my family at night, but still. Don't, don't be... Kids, immaturity. You know why they say that? Immaturity. Arrogance. You just don't know what like. You don't know what it's like. And what Paul is addressing here are normal human experiences with regard to temptation. And he's saying it's common to all man. What you're battling is no different than what everybody else was battling. And listen to me. He says God is faithful and will provide a way out. Will provide a way out. Always. But the key here is it's a normal temptations common to man. Temptation, they weren't the first culture to have to battle with idolatry. They weren't the first culture to deal with what they were dealing with. That's Paul's point. Look to Israel. They battled the same things. And they failed. And look at the consequences. They're not suffering. These are temptations. Temptation is not what God will allow you to have more of than what you can handle. Hebrews 4, write, write down Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Listen to what it says. Therefore, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens just as the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Go back to Matthew 4. Satan held out a temptation in in all the three areas. You can take whatever you're facing, you can bottle them up in one of three areas. Jesus faced all three of those areas and yet was without sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. The sin becomes in how you respond to that temptation. I can't control what's put out there. What I deal with is how I respond to that. Okay, how I respond to the temptation. And you can go to James 4 to see how... Outward temptation, the process it comes, you can go to James to see how it becomes sin. We we have a high priest that was tempted in all the ways we are, yet was without sin. He'll provide a way out. He's saying, Corinthians, take heed lest you fall. If you're not careful with temptation, if you play around with temptation, you play around with sin, there's going to be heavy consequences, not only for you, but for all those around you. And what he says is this, you always have a choice not to give in to temptation and sin. You have a choice. I don't always have a choice with regards to suffering and these other things that we lump into this. I do have a choice with how I respond to temptation and sin. And to think otherwise, Paul says, is arrogant and immature. You think about a kid, a kid who gets caught. How many times do you ever catch a kid and they say, you know what? You are right. It was totally my fault. I did. It is just totally my fault, and I'm sorry. No, no, he made me do it. She made me do it. It's everybody else's fault. What is that? That's immaturity. It's arrogance. And that's what they're saying here. It's, it's all these other things. No, no, no. You're arrogant and you're immature. Again, this promise is in respect to temptation. And again, the context is huge. 
idolatry, immorality. With regards to temptation, God will not give you more than you can, than you can handle. He will always provide a way of escape. L- look at verse 14 of chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, free Id- flee idolatry. Flee. Be like Joseph and get out of Dodge when Potiphar comes after him. To your own humility, get out. Flee. There, there's a way to avoid it. God has provided the exit sign. Get out. This is temptation, and that brings me back. I say all that to bring me back to the original misinterpretation of this verse and the lie about this ver- that, what this verse says. The little saying, God will never give you more than you can handle, is a, is a lie on so many levels. It is an unbiblical truth on so many levels. If you're talking about temptation, okay, but that's not what we say. And again, that lie reeks of the arrogance and the self-confidence and the immaturity that exists amongst the body of Christ, but that also plagued the Corinthians then. It plagues us today. So what's the truth? What's the truth? If that's, if that's a not wholly accurate, what's the truth? And that's number four in your handout. The biblical truth is that God will and can give you more than you can handle through situations and sufferings beyond your strength in order to show that He is strong and that He is able. He absolutely will and can give you more than you can handle on your own strength. And at no time, and no time will that be a conflict or contradictory to His character and His nature and His goodness and His love for you. Why? Because you and I exist, as Paul says it in this chapter, for the glory of God, not the glory of Chris Basham. We exist for the glory of the gospel and the expanse of the gospel. And if God is going to take Chris out of the picture or inflict, inflict Chris with something, and, it, you, and God uses that to lead others to Christ and to strengthen Christ and to go in Christ, you know what, God, as deadly as this statement is, go for it. Go for it. Now listen, as soon as I, I, I say that, that's not in my notes, and that probably scares my wife to death. And it scares me to death. I, I listen to me. Do I, I want to see my kids grow up. I, I want to walk a daughter down the aisle. If God decides, if God doesn't decide for her to get married, I want to walk with her faithfully through her singleness and see her use her singleness to the glory of God. I, I want to one day, Lord willing, see a, a little boy that's 11 grow up and see what God has in store for him. Maybe even if God wills, I, single or married, maybe do his wedding. But I also want them to see in a dad a guy that says, Look, God, this life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. You do whatever you want with me to the glory of God. You do whatever you want with this church to the glory of God. And God will and can do that. Why? Because He's God. As we saw last week in Romans 8, 28, He sees a totally different perspective than us. He will and can do that. And and the point is this. God is not into, he's not after superficiality, us just looking cool on the outside. He's looking for transformation. And that work doesn't happen, that doesn't happen in comfort and security and when everything is hunky-dory. And and listen to me, to prove my point, to prove my point, I want to use the Bible to prove my point. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. Look at what, this is Paul again, this is Paul. You want to read a letter that gets your attention? Read 2 Corinthians, read 2 Corinthians. About a, about, you want to see a life that was devoted to the gospel no matter what, and the fruit that was born of that even in suffering? Read 2 Corinthians. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.8, listen to what he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Look at what he says that we were burdened excessively, how far? Beyond whose strength? Beyond his strength. So that we despaired even of life. Did God give Paul more than he could handle? Absolutely he did. Absolutely he did. Look at verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, but here was the whole point. So that we would not trust in ourselves 
but in God who raises the dead. Amen? You see the goal? That you would not trust in yourself. The very situation that, listen to me, and, I, and I, again, the, the difficulty and yet the beauty of preaching in a small church, I had a long conversation with a lady Wednesday night, is I know some or a lot of a lot of y'all's stories. And I know where you are, and even to hear this is difficult, but listen to me. Be encouraged where you are. God may be teaching you simply to not trust in your own strength, but in a God who raises the dead. To, to let go of this life and know that, that, that contrary to what some so-called Christian writers write, my best life is not now. If this is my best life now, I have, I have a raw deal. Christianity is a bad deal. For people who think that, they better live it up because their best life is now. God, God is teaching us to not trust in ourselves. Paul did have more than he could handle. And that was the whole point. Romans 8, 28, that he, he works all things together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. You know what the good is in Paul's life? That Paul would not trust in himself, but in a God who raises the dead. That was the whole point. And God, you see it on your handout, in his great love for us might bring us to the point where we are beyond ourselves so that we learn that we have to trust in him and his strength alone to live this Christian life well. That we would know him. Paul says that in Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, but also what? The fellowship of his sufferings. There was an intimacy that was born between Paul and his Savior through sufferings that would not have been born through comfort. And Paul says, that's good. That's why I laid all, these, all, these, all this pharisaical, fleshly nonsense, why I laid it all down. Why literally he says there in verse 8 of chapter 3, I count it as dung. That's the word there. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer said this, Progress in the Christian life is exactly equal to the growing knowledge we gain of the triune God in personal experience. Do you know the Lord? Do you know Him well? Intimacy. And intimacy is born through trials. It is born through trials. The strongest marriages in here are often those who have been tested, who have been tested and tested and tested, and they born the test. They're strong. Look with me at 2 Corinthians, just to further the point, 2 Corinthians 6, 4. Paul, again, talking about, talking about his ministry and doing whatever it takes that his ministry, verse 3, would not be discredited. He says, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and genuine love in the word of truth and the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold, we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. That's Philippians 4.13. How did Paul learn that? By going through it. By having nothing. Paul knew nothing of this comfort. Listen, listen to 11. If you read chapter 11, he talks about all his sufferings. And he says, verse 30, the point is this. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Over in chapter 12, you see the same thing. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. To keep me from exalting myself. Paul wants you to know, this is why I have this. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, this was God's response. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. 
Paul said, okay, most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am strong, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Sounds to me like he got more than he could handle. Sounds to me like that was the whole point. Glory to God in the highest. And, and, and again, the, the lie, the lie behind all of this, in, in my opinion, and, and again, you don't you won't hear this, you won't hear this saying quoted in foreign in a lot of foreign countries. You you won't hear this quoted where there's a real cost that comes with Christ, with following Christ. But here in America, the tendency for us is we have believed that we can live the Christian life on our own and according to our own strength. We believe that we can do it. And the reality is the Americanized Christianity that a lot of people are selling, you can do it on your own. Why? Because it, Christianity has basically been boiled down to moralism. Moralism. Just be a good person. That's not Christianity. And you say, well, Chris, how do you know that's true? How, 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 do, you, how do you know that, why do you think that, that we believe we can do it our own? Here, here's why. Because we neglect the Word of God. We neglect prayer. We neglect the gathering weekly on Sundays and Wednesdays to encourage one another. Why, why do we do that, Chris? Because I'm going to tell you, in my own life, and I believe it's in yours too, I believe the lie that I can live this life on my own. I believe that I can do the Christian life on my own. And only when I get in a bind, only when times get rough, only when I get in a bind, you know what? People get real faithful then. They get real devoted then. Why? Because they believe, we believe the lie that we can live this on our own. And we can't. We can be moralists on our own. But we're not going to do, we're not going to go through Paul went through on our own, not our own strength. Listen, biblical, you see it on your handout, biblical Christianity is taking up our cross daily and dying to self and do whatever is involved to bring God glory and expand His kingdom. That's biblical Christianity. And, and, and we, we have got to, as Clay said, we've got to rid ourselves of this, this fascination with health and security and escapism. I don't like pain. And like I said, I, I want to I grow old with my wife and kids. But that may not be God's plan. And if God uses that, if God uses something in my life to bring Him glory, I've got to get to the point where I say, okay, God, I'm okay with that. I'm okay. Because your glory is the greatest good. I mean, the Bible is very clear, Romans 8, 17. If we are children, then heirs, heirs, of with God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Romans 8, 18, he goes on, the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is revealed in us. 2 Timothy 3, 12, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The list goes on and on. God was very clear, even to His own disciples. He says, you know what? I'm, I'm leading you out to be sheep among the wolves. The call to follow Christ is a call to die to self and to suffer. It is Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. It is the call to bear a certain yoke. Matthew 16, 24, to carry a cross. And, and, and again, I, I'm always, I, sometimes I'll, I'll just amuse myself, and I, I, even in my own arrogance and pride. I, I'm, I'm, I'm eat up with it. You know, I watch these television shows where guys are on, on TV preaching and huge audiences and, and, and they're selling, you know, come to Jesus and all your problems and cares will go away. That's not the Christianity that I've experienced. That's a lie. That's a made up lie. And there's a reason their church is really, 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 really big. You know why? Because who doesn't want, who doesn't want a Jesus that offers just, hey, I'll take care of you. Who don't want a God that just says, hey, I'll pander to all of your needs. I'll make everything go great. And, and I'll owe you just for the graciousness of you following me. I appreciate it. That's a lie. 
I dare, that pa- I dare say that pastor has no answers, no answers when their people suffer. And what I want is this. I'm not, I do not want us to be a church or a people that looks for suffering, but I want us to be a people who is prepared if suffering comes. We need a good theology and a right theology of suffering so when it comes, we're prepared. We're not looking, for the, we're not looking to figure out, hey, what's our, what's our... Like yesterday, our security team met. They, they have a plan in the event that something happens. They're not trying to make up a plan in the event of an event. We, we need to have a theology of suffering that says, when I suffer, I'm prepared. The reality is that we saw it in Galatians 6. Part of the reason we gather every week as a body is to bear one another's burdens. Look, if, you could, if God never gave you more than you could handle, why would you need the church to bear your burdens? Because you can handle it. God gives us one another to bear one another's burdens. That's why on October 15th, and I I do not want to... uh, That's why we're serving Gail. We're going to help her. We're going to bear a faithful member of this church's burden on October 15th. And in doing so, we're going to be a testimony to the community around her, what a church looks like and what a church does. Listen, God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. There's always an escape. But God might allow us to suffer what we can handle. Because He is the escape. The gospel is the escape. It's the gospel. It's John 15, 5. Uh, uh, Remain in me and I in you, He says. Jesus says, because apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Do we believe that? Apart from Christ, we got nothing. Nothing. Don't, don't be arrogant and, and, and immature and think that you got this. You don't. And, and God might and can give you, you'll see in your handout, more than you can handle with regards to suffering. And the point of it is that you would not trust in yourself, but in a God who raises the dead. Trust that God. No matter what, trust that God. And I pray that we would be a, a people who trusts that God.